Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. A guard at Louisiana's second largest prison has been arrested after allegedly falsifying public documents following an inmate's suicide. Iberville Parish Sheriff's deputies arrested Master Sergeant Samantha Joubert, 28, of Baton Rouge on Tuesday for malfeasance in office and injuring public records. The State Department of Public Safety and Corrections said that Joubert, who has worked at Elaine Hunt Correctional Center since 2018, was suspended pending the investigation. According to department officials, an inmate committed suicide at the prison on June 2nd. During the investigation of the death, it was discovered that Joubert wrote in the cell block logbook that she had made routine rounds at the prison when she had not. The department, in a news release, said it turned over its findings to the sheriff's office, leading to Joubert's arrest. This week, we share a conversation with Maru Moro Pondo of La Resistencia, a project that organizes against the Northwest Detention Center. In this conversation, Maru passes a kite along on behalf of immigrants housed in the facility. As they point out, facilities like this are black boxes where extra effort must be taken to shed light on conditions inside. Here they are. So Mara, thank you so much for joining us today. Can you just start off by telling us a little bit about how you came to this work and became an organizer? So, you know, I'm an immigrant from Mexico and I came here in the early 90s just to visit and practice my English. And I used to go back and forth between Mexico and the U.S. and I really didn't like the U.S. You know, I always share that I would, every time I would come to practice and uh, learn more English, I would say like, oh, these Yankees, you know, they, they go to my country and they steal from us and then they don't want us here, but yet they go to our country and eat our tamales and, you know, they buy our, our property and now sometimes we don't even have uh, land because they have taken it. So I would have these conflicts between having to come here, practice some English, so I could get some skills and have a job in Mexico. And at the end, I ended up staying in 1996. And so uh, as I stayed and I overstayed my visa, I became undocumented and I had a daughter. Um, I had a daughter and I started getting really worried that although she has officially a US citizenship, uh, she was the daughter of undocumented Mexican immigrants. And I felt that it was up to me to guarantee that she would be treated as a full human being and not as a the daughter of undocumented immigrants. And in, because of my immigration status, I, I just figured, okay, it, it's the, I'm undocumented because I don't have a document, so let's go get that document. So I would go and ask you know, lawyers and workshops and whatever, you know, community centers. And I would say, how do, I, how do I get the paper? And people would be like, uh, you know, wait for immigration reform. That's what everybody told me. And I was like, what, what is that? So I had to learn on my own, what does that mean? So I became very involved in just learning what immigration was, you know, what it meant here in the US, because it was very different from the country I came. And then uh, I had to learn about policy. I had to learn about immigration law. Uh, but I, since Mexico, 
I, I come from a place where there was already a lot of organizing around us and we supported organizing. I don't think my family was, or most of my family was interested in it, but you cannot look away from organizing in Mexico City. It's everywhere, you know, there, there's unions and there's work stoppages and then there's uh, always um, a big takeover of uh, the downtown Mexico and Zócalo. You know, I also went to a very politicized high school, so... <laughs> It wasn't difficult for me to say, well, you know, I think we need to learn all, all how the system works, but we also need to organize. Um, and it has to be done by us, by the same people that the government refuses to give a paper, yet they demand us to have a paper. So that's that's how I, I end up doing this work and becoming an organizer, both the fact that I have this child and my own necessity to have this paper. What a wonderful story. There's so many things I want to ask you about that, but I will be good and I will move on. The Northwest Ice Processing Center or the Northwest uh, Detention Center has been a, a long-term site of struggle and in particular for the group that you work with, La Resistencia. Could you just maybe walk through our listeners maybe who aren't super familiar uh, with the struggles that have occurred there, just some of the important moments um, because it's it's been a very long arc of struggle now. Yeah, it's been over eight years now. Um, in 2014, um, I decided to come out publicly as undocumented and stage a civil disobedience outside the detention center by stopping uh, deportation buses that were leaving that morning from the detention center. And um, that led to an organizing strategy that was already brewing inside by people detained and so a couple of weeks later that we did that action in February of 2014, there was the largest so far hunger strike we have ever seen in a detention center where 1,200 people went on hunger strike. And so they call us, they say, well, you were outside and you said you're with us and you don't want deportations, no detentions, come and help us, you know, now do something. <laughs> and so we were like, okay. Um, so that's how the group began. And uh, we literally had to learn from people in detention what was happening. Uh, we thought we knew about the detention center. We didn't know anything. It was just the tip of the iceberg, literally, what we saw and what we knew, and then everything else that people in detention had to share with us. And so it was really the organizing that created this strategy of them organizing inside and us in the outside, uh, following their leadership. And learning again how organizing happens in prison settings, you know, like this. And so there's been way too many hunger strikes there. I lost track of how many. Last year, uh, I thought we didn't have any hunger strikes, and then I just look on my on my files, and I was like, oh yeah, there was a hunger strike also in 2021. So there's been so many hunger strikes, and there's been hunger strikes that we haven't heard of. Later on, we find out that someone or a couple of people did a hunger strike that we didn't hear of. But um, not only hunger strikes, they've done actions such as a yard action where uh, people were complaining about the lack of air conditioning in the middle of summer. And so they went to the yard and they refused to go in and they asked us to make it public. So we actually went to the yard and did a Facebook Live. And so uh, it, it worked, you know, they fixed, uh, Geo fixed the, the air conditioning right after that. Then another uh, big action was um, also in the yard, people uh, told us that they will spell with their own bodies SOS. So they wanted aerial pictures. And this happened when COVID began. So in April of 2020, uh, these guys uh, 
spelled SOS, we were able to get aerial pictures of that. And when we published them, it was huge. We even had the very conservative uh, local paper, Tacoma News Tribune, writing an editorial in support of releasing people because of COVID, which we had never seen before. Tacoma News Tribune would actually allow a space for GEO to write opinion in the editorials in support of continue uh, of having the detention center operating. Um, so there's always been this struggle and, and it has worked again because people inside the site and we in that side, we follow and we provide the tools. That's wonderful. Um, and, you know, so there has been a new round of hunger strikes that seem pretty significant. And you mentioned that there were there have been many, but only one last year, at least as far as we know right now, but it seems like um, there's been an important new round of hunger strikes that have, were launched within last week. Could you just tell us a little bit about them and then also some of the conditions that are, are motivating this, uh, this, this new uh, struggle? Yeah, um, the, I think the reason why these, these latest hunger strike happened was because Last year, GEO lost a lawsuit um, against them because they had been paying a dollar a day to, for, to people detained to clean and maintain the facility. And they did that since it opened in 2004. And that's a practice that they've used across their detention centers throughout the country uh, because it's legal. You know, ICE has permitted that. And that's, that's their business model, is to utilize slave labor. Um, and so the, the lawsuit uh, argue that here in Washington state, it doesn't matter your immigration status. If you work, you have to be paid the minimum wage. And at that moment when the lawsuit ended uh, with you know, a good a favorable outcome for people detained, it was $13.69 per hour. And so GEO uh, retaliated against people detained by ending the work program, which is funny because during the trial, they argued that not only GEO needed the work program. People in detention needed the work program because there's nothing else to do. There's no programs. There's no, you know, you just spend the time doing nothing. So this is needed for them. Yet when they lost, they ended the work program, program immediately. And this also had to do with COVID coming back as Omicron. And when they stopped the work program, then all of a sudden you don't have anyone cleaning the facility. And so the facility is now a hotspot of filthiness for COVID, which already have been, but now it's worse. And because people have complained since October, since the end of October, beginning of November about these conditions. And, and then the guards now, the geo guards are made to also run the kitchen and run the laundry. People get even worse food than they were getting already. And so it just throughout the months, it gets worse and worse until a couple of them say enough is enough. We can, can take it. GEO should clean the, the facility. ICE officers should come to our units and talk to us. Oh, because ICE officers also don't want to go in, you know, because from many COVID cases, there's a lot of cases of ICE officers with COVID. Actually, we learn through um, labor in Washington State Department of Labor and Industry Investigation that an ICE officer died of COVID early this year. They said, you know, we want clean clothes. We want a, a space that is clean. We want our jobs back. And we, we want fair pay, the just pay that we deserve. Um, 
We want food that we can actually eat, not this garbage food that we're getting. Uh, we want to see our, our immigration officers. We want to know what's going on with our cases. Um, we want lights to be out at 11.30 so we can actually sleep and then turn them on at five, um, not deem them, and this we still can't sleep. So there were all these basic things that they were requesting. Uh, and the most important one was we don't want geo guards and ICE officers to continue spreading COVID because that's, that's how we get COVID. So we have seen that again and again, that usually the very first cases that happen is geo guards or ICE officers. And then obviously the, the cases happen also in general population of uh, people that they. That's, that's really interesting what you're, what you're saying. You know, I think on the outside, really the world is, or at least in the United States, people are really shifting to a you know, the a pandemic is kind of over, but it's very interesting to see, you know, from the perspective of the inside that it continues and that it's something that people are still organizing around. And that's a, I think that's a really interesting dynamic there. Um, if, if I'm not mistaken, the, there has also been some recent reporting um, about sexual abuse in the facility. Could you talk to us a little bit just about some of the information that's emerging um, there and just some of the some of the revelations um, that uh, people have uncovered recently. Yeah, you know, I think that's the importance of the show, you know, kite line, the kites. Uh, whenever people call us and say, this happened to me, the first thing we tell them is file, file a kite, send a kite. Not because it's gonna get sold, just because it's documented. And later we'll have access to that and that's why we have now this report. So throughout the years, people have told us again and again, the abuse, the harassment that they suffer by guards, by medical employees, and sometimes by other people detained. And we have never heard of a resolution to any of that. As you visit the detention center, you see all these posters that say zero tolerance, um, sexual assault survivors have a hotline to call and well we learned that the supposedly a, a agreement that geo has with a local a nonprofit organization that is there precisely to help survivors of sexual assault has never been used it is it, sitting there and the organization said we have never heard from geo anything and the report shows how many Grievances have been filed, and this organization doesn't know of any of them. And at the same time, the resolution that they bring to these, these grievances is, it didn't happen. We didn't see that it's founded. You know what? That person doesn't work here. So there's an example of that. There's a, a guy, his last name is Valenzuela. In, in, the, in one of the, the grievances say, you know, Valenzuela did this to me. And the response of GNI was like, we don't have anybody here by that name. And that happened in 2019. We are in touch with a lot of people that were deported or being released. And we immediately reached out and said, do you ever met this guy, blah, 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 Valenzuela? Of course. His family works there. His wife works there. His brother-in-law works there. And uh, when I was there, he was still there. We actually were able, through this uh, same investigation that I was talking about by Washington State Department of Labor and Industry, we found the list of all the employees currently in GEO. And there's a guard named Valenzuela. So that shows you, you know, the secrecy of these 
this company, the secrecy of ICE. They've done this and they will continue doing so because it works for them. We have always said again and again, if people only knew what's happening there, they would be outraged and they would ask, as people in detention ask, this has to end. And especially when people have suffered sexual violence. It's just outrageous to think that they would even deny that that happened. That's the worst thing that you can do to a victim, to invalidate their experience. Absolutely. And I mean, I think, you know, one of the things you were touching on is, is just that these sites are black boxes. You know, there is no transparency whatsoever. And those kinds of conditions create the conditions for the abuse of, of people. And abuse uh, is a, you know, a, a, a wide range of different types of um, abuses of, of, of human beings. Uh, talking a little bit about um, ICE in particular, um, and this kind of the their slow construction, let's say, um, of a kind of parallel apparatus of repression with very little oversight. There has been a lot of reporting also recently in the last few months about the digital programs of ICE, both the some new details or, or um, confirmation of its massive surveillance program that it's able, it's been able to construct in particular third-party brokers of information and kind of a revelation that they have information on almost every single adult in the United States and are in doing processing that kind of information. And then also on their digital prison program, um, which seems like it's, it's rapidly expanding. Have you, you know, what do things look like locally um, in terms of that kind of digital side of ICE? What are you all seeing? How is this affecting organizing? Where is it kind of appearing and popping up uh, for you all? Well, we've seen that uh, lack of privacy in our data for years and years back. Maybe even before they started probably reaching out to data brokers, they were already using state agencies, you know, like the Department of Licensing here in Washington State. So for years, we, we talk to people and we find out, you know, we do kind of investigative work, again, because of this, this secrecy. And so... We learned throughout the years that they were having access to, to people's license plates, driver's license registration. I mean, in my case, that's how they found my home address. They just sent an email to the Department of License and saying, this, this individual has a final order of deportation, which was completely a lie. You know, they hadn't even started the process against me. And the Department of Licensing was like, here you go. You know, they never asked for that. They never confirm anything. Because let's remember also that a lot of the people that work in this kind of business, either agencies or industries, they are formerly cops. They're veterans of war, you know? And so they have this tendency of policing, regardless of what job they're doing. And so they, they find each other. <laughs> and so... I believe that a lot of these data brokers that now are selling all this data to, to ICE, they also feel like, you know, like police. They come from that world where it's okay to police us, regardless of who we are and, you know, what stories are. And so if we saw that first with, with the state agencies and we were able to stop that, we've been able to limit ICE overreach at state level, not only Washington, but many other states, they obviously had to go with enterprises, private actors, which they already started, right, since the inception of ICE. GEO, when, when in this case, GEO, because it's the one that runs the detention center here, uh, when they opened uh, 
the detention center. They didn't build the site, they bought it. But at the same time, they were already creating a subsidiary to run the electronic monitoring of people that regardless of being released from detention, they will still be monitored through these, what is called ankle bracelets. And so we, we saw how also it became a huge business for a lot of companies, Lexus, no, Libre by Nexus, this huge, huge predator company that were charging $450 a month per rent for the bracelet. And so the difficulty in our organizing is that when you're so desperate in the detention center that you even go on hunger strike, and then I says, well, we can have you release with an ankle bracelet, people are going to say yes. So in many instances, people's demands say, release me even with an ankle bracelet. That, so even people in detention ask for it because it's, it's an option. And it's the option that they think at least is the only option I have. I'll take it without knowing how it's going to impact their lives. Later when they're released and they have it on, they realize this is not freedom. This is still prison. They're, they're, now they're not only uh, monitoring me, they're monitoring my family. They're monitoring my community, my neighborhood. Anybody around me now is being monitored by them. And the amount of money that these companies are making is insane. I's um, national director was uh, before Congress this week arguing they're not going to fill beds in detention as they've done in years, years past. You know, they, they have to have, a, a, I don't know if they call it now a maximum or a minimum, 36,000 beds available any day throughout the country. They've always have surpassed that for sure. Since Trump left, actually that number came down. With Biden, it went up again. Now they're saying, we're only gonna have 25,000 beds. We're not gonna have 36,000. But the rest, give us the, the, the amount of money we want, $8 billion, just to run the electronic monitoring uh, services, right? And so that is still a digital prison. That is a prison. And it's the accumulation of data and what they do without data that we have no idea. How is this gonna be used not only by them, but against us? And so it's a scary thought that you work, you pay your, the insurance uh, on your car, you pay maybe the electricity bill, you post something in Facebook and then you go out and you know walk to the street and go to the doctor. And all that information is for sale. And ICE will take it and will use it against you whatever way they want to. Yeah, it's a real, it is a real dark box. I think it's really interesting the way you're kind of pointing out some of the new contradictions that shift maybe away from housing people in detention centers towards uh, digital surveillance or, or monitoring um, is creating and organizing, um, which is maybe leading us into kind of uh, just thinking more broadly about the landscape of organizing, abolitionist organizing, organizing against detention centers in the United States. Obviously, ICE is always changing. You know, their partners are also always changing. From where you are, just to take kind of like a, a big picture perspective, where do you think we're at in terms of our organizing? What kinds of challenges are you thinking about? Do you see on the horizon? And where do you think we should be putting our energy now and in the coming months? And, say year? I think we're at 
a very victorious moment. I think we have proven that the leadership of those detained, it's real. Um, that even in the worst circumstances, people are able to organize and win. And I think that is huge because when we began this work, uh, people would say, oh, okay, yeah, some, some should not be detained. Some should not be deported. What are you talking about? People that came from prison, that served 30 year sentence that should be released. And now we have seen again and again, even politicians coming and saying, yeah, it should be closed. You know, we have resol a resolution from Syria Tacoma saying everybody should be released because of COVID. We have HB 1090, the law that says we don't want this kind of business here, right? So we have, we have done a lot of great work and we are in a great moment to push further because that's why they extended the, the electronic monitoring program because the Biden administration comes and says, oh, we're not Trump. Uh, let's keep them under surveillance. Let's actually add more people to, to immigration enforcement custody. We have more, more people right now in their ICE custody than when Trump left. And so, like you say, they adapt, right? We, we win in one place and then they go and explore another one. And as long as it's a business, of course there will be new ways for adapting. You know, because there's always the profit motive of, you know, how capitalism works. So that's one challenge. But the other challenge is we still haven't gotten people to agree that prisons should not exist. We're not there yet. We have people that agree, yes, all immigration systems should not exist. People should be allowed to come in and people should not be deported or not detained. Wait, but if they made a mistake, if they committed a crime, they, they should be in prison. And that's the part we haven't really moved as we should have. And I think that's been a lot of the problems with the immigrant rights movement, because the immigrant rights movement began with we're not criminals. They play the game that the, the dreamers play. It wasn't our fault. We're perfect. We speak English. We want to go to school. We want to be financiers. We want to be capitalistic. You know, we, we want to set up businesses. <laughs> and as long as that happens, then you're welcome. And so they they push this narrative, which we completely refuse. And so I think that, that for us, that is to understand this is a business, yes, and we need to end it, whatever shape or form of business is in regards to monitoring people and having people in prison or under custody of a, of a police enforcement agency. But at the same time, nobody in the first place should be taken into a, a, a jail. Nobody should be placed in a cage. You know, we all, the way we explain it in, in resistencia, because we don't use the word abolition in, in, our, in our community, nobody really knows what that means. So what we say is, if so many people now disagree, not even animals should be in cages. Yeah. Zoos are shutting down or changing completely. We don't want animals to be treated that way. Why do we still allow human beings to be in, in cages? How has that worked? And people are like, yeah, you're right. So we need to have those conversations in our communities with the understanding that people do get hurt, but that what we have as solutions is not a solution. It's just a method of control of our population. And I think that's where we need to put more energy and allow the people that are in prison to lead and to lead for true abolition, not for, you know, and. I've seen so many people say, well, I want my loved one to earn their sentence quickly. That's all I want. 
you know, who cares about the movement? All I want is, and that that's real and it's true. But that's that's limiting the efforts of so many that really they want complete abolition. They don't want prisons and they're willing to fight and they're willing to, willing to sacrifice themselves. That's what a, a hunger strike is for us. It's the maximum sacrifice that anybody can do. And we should support that no matter what. And I think if in the prison abolition movement, we're able to do that, I think we're gonna move to a place where we can actually start shutting down some prisons. This has been KiteLine. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. After a brief hiatus, we're happy to report that our prisoner call-in phone line is back. Folks on the inside or their outside friends and supporters can call 765-343-6236 to record a message to be played on the air. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.